You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. So this uh, elementary school student is given an assignment of show and tell. And uh, this is cool. You know, people are like, well, I have a ukulele or, you know, uh, you know, here I designed a hanging mobile with my mother and see it, you know, or I baked cookies, show and tell. So what Kristen Preble brings in is, I have documents and they're marked classified. Hello, everyone. First, we're going to make a note about the fall of USSR podcast. Very excited about it. Really a 10 years in the making. We'll get into that. And then also talk a bit about classified documents based on a question that I got. So fall of USSR, three main points before we drop this episode, February the 6th, one you can go to patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P and get all the episodes before anyone else does. Right now, there are five episodes of Fall of USSR on there um, talking about the August 1991 coup that took Gorbachev out of power temporarily and resulted in the fall of the Soviet Union and talking about a lot more about Soviet life, etc., there will be a sixth episode. There will be a seventh episode uh, in February and March. Uh, the sixth episode will deal with the actual fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the coup. And the seventh will be a scrapbook that will be kind of a catch up because there's so much information in doing this. Uh, over the course of 2022, while I was recording other episodes for you, I compiled about three legal pads full of stuff from at least 21 books, dozens of journal articles and web articles, different biographies, uh, key sources, the Agveni Albert State Within a State, Donald Riley, Soviet Baby Boomers, definitely recommend that one, Hendrick Smith, The Russians, old but a fun read, and The New Russians, Joseph Weisberg's um, Russia Upside Down, like it, like it, uh, Stephen Culkin's Armageddon Averted, and so many more books. You can get these episodes early, plus you can hear even more about William Jennings Bryan. We talked about him on a previous episode. Did you know that he had a nearly adopted son in Japan? We tell that story. And there's a story about Lyndon Johnson. Did he actually want to get nominated in that 1968 convention, no matter what he told the TV cameras earlier in that year. We go through all the evidence behind that. Plus, there's lots of leftovers, little nuggets from episodes that haven't been published on the main feed you get. It's as little as $3 a month, and if you want to support more, you can. Can cancel any time. Some people do. They come in and out. It, it's fine. I I appreciate any support that I get uh, for my history can beat up your politics. And I really just appreciate you listening. So another point I want to make about the upcoming USSR podcast, it's going to dominate 
a lot of February. And I know there's going to be news happening and it's probably going to be like, why am I hearing about this? Right. There's all these like cool politics that Bruce could be talking about. Why is he talking about Russia for so long? I think it is going to dominate airspace a little bit, but I really think it's important for one. Russia invaded Ukraine last year. They really invaded Ukraine in 2014, but they invaded Ukraine in a big way last year. I got to tell you, this cast was in the works before that. So this is not an explanation of the war in Ukraine. There's an episode we did with uh, Ben Sawyer that was really good and touched in on this. But I have to say, obviously, with the way international politics is going, it's not a bad idea to know about Russia what a Russian citizen might be thinking and what their at least near-term history, last 30 years, is because the fall of USSR is the most important event, right, in in their history, recent history, and in their relationship with the United States. So what actually happened? You're getting some people both in Russia and in the United States that are too young to really know. I watched some of the events we're talking about on TV. Not everyone did. So we get into all of that. It's not just about Putin or the origin of Putin or something like that. We're going to touch on him. But and also, you know, you, you in hearing about the fall of the USSR, for instance, you're, you're hearing about things like the role Ukraine played, which was essential. You know, in no Ukraine, you could argue no fall of the USSR. It doesn't fall because when Gorbachev could not get Ukraine's support, for keeping the Soviet Union, it fell. That was a decisive moment. We're going to get into that in episode six. Ukrainian independence movement is essential for the fall of the Soviet Union, as is the the ones in the other republics. And it's, it's always Yeltsin on the tank, right? We get into all of this. I'll save it for the episode. And then another note. Let me just say at the outset, anybody listening to the upcoming USSR cast, man, I did not study the Russian language. I do not speak Russian. I know my pronunciations are going to be off on some of these things. Did the best I could. I got web-based pronunciation. Um, I alternate Gorbachev, which is the right pronunciation, and Gorbachev a couple of times. You hear some announcers doing that sometimes on the news. Names I probably butchered. I do, in the, I do the best I can with it. Why then, Bruce, would you do such a series? Why not have like a Russian expert do it? And here's the simple reason. I think I can translate events. I've been doing this for a while. I think I can translate events pretty well for at least you listening so you understand it. And it may not be the best podcast on Russian history out there. Certainly not. It might be the best one that's filtered through what you need to explain events. Your understanding, right, as being a listener, which of your listener mind, the bulk of you are in U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia. Okay, that's it. So Brett McIntyre emailed me. Hey, Bruce, I've emailed you before to express my undying fanhood. But now I email you much in the way that Commissioner Gordon puts up the bat signal. The city's dying for a hero, and his name is Bruce. As the king of levity analysis without egregious bias, and just good old historical knowledge. We need an episode providing some context to this classified docs episode that we're going through with 45 and 46. Both guys seem to have totally messed up here and probably eliminated whatever political game they could have pulled from it. But is this common? And are we just now seeing the light on it? People need to know, and you're the man to tell the story. As an AP U.S. history teacher, 
Brett McIntyre says. I value you and your wisdom greatly, sir. Please keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Brett. And uh, I have to say this. I'm Batman. <laughs> well, at least according to Brett. I like to consider myself that way. The way I look at this show is like, I'm not, I don't think Batman, but, you know, I'm like the plumber of history. Although when I said that once on Twitter, I was told, like, please choose another metaphor. I'm like, but that's what I'm, I'm applying history in a way that it doesn't always get done that way. That's, that's what I try to, using it the best we can to understand things. This is a humdinger of a, of a story, but given the bat signal up in the sky, I cannot resist the call. Not an expert on classified documents. All right. I don't know all the ins and outs and all the procedures. I do know some of these politics and some of them want in history. I'll tell the tale and I hope it, there's at least one interesting story here. Well, let's start with that one. So this uh, elementary school student is in a Pennsylvania school and is given an assignment of show and tell. And uh, her name is Kristen Preble. It's 1984. So what Kristen Preble brings in is, I have documents and they're marked classified, confidential, executive, and property of the United States government. What? <laughs> so she shows this to the students and the teacher grabs them after she's done and is like, well, let me look these over. He looks at them. And he sees that they contain information on Libya and Iran, and it's 1984. So these are places of sources of potential trouble. And so he calls the FBI, and the FBI starts an investigation based on this. Now, his school, for the record, is a little mad that he didn't go to the parents, but he went to the FBI instead. Anyway, it turns out that... Jimmy Carter is going to debate Reagan. The debate is in Cleveland. Alan Preble, Kristen's father, is a businessman traveling. He travels like the week after the debate and ends up staying in the same hotel room that Jody Powell, who was Jimmy Carter's secretary, had stayed in. So he finds these documents. He thinks, oh, they're pretty cool. Um, and really, they're just kind of hanging out in his place for like kind of like a keepsake. Kristen's mother says, we looked at them. We didn't think they were important. So the Congress starts investigating and looks into this security breach. It turns out that Jody Powell and Carter were preparing for the debate. And, of course, when you think about Libya, so in 1980, Jimmy Carter's brother was involved um, with the Libyan government. He received monies from the Libyan government and had not registered as an agent until the time of the election. This is great. Right as Carter's getting into his uh, nomination convention, his battle against Ted Kennedy, boom, the Billy Carter story hits. So that's probably one of the things he's preparing for there. And Iran, I mean, they were holding U.S. hostages and was certainly part of that debate. So Jody Powell obviously left these documents in his hotel room for Alan Preble to pick up um, accidentally the next day. And yeah, the hotel, I guess, wasn't cleaned well enough. Um, that's it. It's not a big deal. They look into it in Congress. The Reagan Justice Department decides, you know, this isn't worth looking into further, you know, and, and Reagan's not exactly in a mood to do it because Carter's got a claim against him. At this point, there's a whole debate gate where, Papers from this same debate prep somehow made their way to the Reagan campaign. And that was being looked into as well. So it's kind of like plague on both your houses and everything like that. 
So there is that kind of classified document story. But let's take the needle and pick it up from the record player (laughs) right now. Before we go too far with this, before I give you like seven historical examples or anything like that, I could tell you about him. Ulysses S. Grant admitted that he lost any paper that was ever given to him. And by the way, that would be the same if like there was a president, Bruce Carlson. I do this cast. I got legal pads all over the place and boxes of stuff and stray papers. Like, oh, use that. Remember to read this. It would be horrible at handling this stuff. Um, But if we do this kind of like NPR talk of like classified documents over the years have been very difficult to handle and there's a lot more of them and the FBI has often investigated the mishandling of documents. You know, we could do that and all those three things are actually true. There's more documents than ever before classified. There's a lot of them. There's always mishandling investigations and it's happened before and all of that. If we did that, one could be rightly accused of being biased a bit because of the way the story is falling as it started as something that Trump was doing. And now it turns out that Biden had documents in his residence as well. I do. I am of the school of people who think these two cases are different, but that and, you know, $3 to get you a ride in the subway as the saying goes, because you have to talk about the politics here. Um, have to talk about the politics. You can't just like history this one away as much as I would like Brett for you and your students to know more about that. I think there is a context, but we weren't doing that last year to be fair when this, when this occurred with, with Trump. And so now you have it, you have it occurring with Biden. So I think you have to start with political. And I, and you know, as soon as this broke, I knew two things. This is an own goal. This is absolutely terrible for Biden. And he had no business criticizing Trump until he had conducted a review if he had done this as well. It's a glass houses. You want to make a joke out of it? Glass garages, right? Gotta make that point. No business because his statement was actually, you know, he went ahead and said as president, sitting president, that, um, Trump's behavior with the Mar-a-Lago documents is absolutely irresponsible. And I think it's just a simple thing. You don't say that in politics unless you know that you haven't done similar things. I do think they're different in how people are cooperating with the investigation. Yes. But guess what? Exactly what I thought would happen has so far happened. And at NBC poll, 67% of the American people simply equate the two cases. They don't care about the differences. And that's what I think is going to largely happen. You had a kind of point on your political opponent, and you definitely lost it with an own goal that now really um, doesn't give you the ability to criticize at all. So before we get into the whole like contextualizing and how hard this, you know, it is, um, I think that's important to say. He's got other problems, Biden, with this, because the political situation for Biden is pretty much, and yeah, I'm putting my political hat on. This is not totally the history guy here. Political situation right now is that Biden remains tops of the Democratic Party in terms of who will be president in that he's a unifying figure. And in other words, can sell Democrats on, I beat Trump. If you don't want Trump here, which is a 
you know, polls would show, obviously, that's a key concern of Democrats not having Trump back in 2024. Biden always wants to make that argument that he's the best deliverer of that goal. I will put my history hat back on to make it clear my opinion on these things, that if at all possible, in general, parties should keep the incumbent president. Let me say that again. In general, parties should always keep the incumbent president. It's always better to run with an incumbent president than not. I mean, some situations just going to be so bad for a party, you're not going to win anyway. But it will never work, in my opinion, to replace the incumbent with a new person. Because the problem is you told the world you wanted the White House under this party, under this person. And now you're going to say, let's beat this person. And I have a new vision, but I'm running in the same party. It's never going to work. You're going to spend too much time bickering with the old president's agenda, dealing with the big questions as to what you disagree with and what you didn't, what what you're going to change, why didn't you do anything. That new candidate's going to get scorched in that process. You're better off running an incumbent president. You do not want to give up that White House. I will say it. A lot of people will disagree, but that, I believe, is the history. Manchin the other day saying, well, why is he saying he has no regrets? He should have regrets. And Dick Durbin, pretty high figure there to be critical. So you're getting Democrats that are critical. If Biden can't show that I'm more competent, right, I'm the guy that is more competent than any other candidate running, he's going to get a primary in 2024. I think you're always going to get some kind of somebody was going to run against him just as a kind of show, if nothing else. But now you're going to get you know, you have the potential now for more serious. We'll see where it goes. Um, it's terrible timing politically, too, because you're just at the point. You have um, Congress, which, in my view, making a few mistakes. Tough speaker's election. Dealing with the George Santos situation, it's embarrassing. Dealing with some of the members that are embarrassing. I will admit, though, some of the members that are a little, say, wacky, like previously, or trying to straighten up more, show a little bit, you know. That's what happens. That's what happens. They're in power. You want that seat. Until you have it, you're going to claw like hell, and then you're in the power seat, and you want to keep there. Anyway, he's got an opportunity to score points and loses it every day that this is the story. Those are my political thoughts. So there is a difference between these two cases of Biden and Trump that we know it, but it's being handled by the Justice Department appropriately in that you're getting a special counsel for each to go and investigate it. On top of that, they've asked the stewards of the presidential papers for the Bush White House, for Dan Quayle, for Gore, for Obama, for Clinton. They've asked if to review the records to see if they have anything. They're all returning statements that say, you know, we don't have anything George W. Bush's office saying. We've already complied with that. Pence, for instance, had kept some documents They're not sending the request to Carter because the Presidential Records Act of 1978 was passed by the Congress and signed by Carter, did not take effect until January 20th, 1981. That's convenient, right, for the new president to comply with. So it only goes forward there. Prior to this, and the real impetus for the 1978 law is that Nixon claimed ownership of his papers and wanted to keep them, and in the end, after a battle, had to surrender millions of pages of records to the National Archives. After that, before that, it was up to the president how they wanted to deal with their papers. 
I mean, if you go way back in history, Washington dies before he could get the papers and orders. One of his last instructions to Tobias Lear is like his uh, manager, you know, was like, get these papers in order for me. I want to build a library, not a library that people could visit, but a library of his own. Uh, Chester Arthur had his son burn his papers. See, presidents over the years have been concerned, like probably Nixon was, about being viewed badly because of things that they wrote in correspondence as president. But the Presidential you know, Records Act of 1978 doesn't give them that option anymore. So this is a relative new thing that we're dealing with. Zachary Taylor's papers were destroyed by the U.S. government for him in that uh, when Union troops invaded his son's house and burnt it to the ground, the Zachary Taylor uh, letters were destroyed. His son was a Confederate officer. Uh, you know, what else do you want me to say? I went over the politics and went over the issues involved here. Is it the greatest issue affecting the Republic? It could be tightened up, surely. Uh, FBI Director Christopher Gray's comment that we have these rules for a reason. You know, that's a point well taken. He's also said that over the years, been several mishandling investigative um, investigations. I do think quite often we're talking about people moving these documents for the president. In the case of Pence, it appears that it was vice presidential aides that did the entire move from the vice president, from the Naval Observatory. And there were classified documents as part of that. In terms of numbers, you're talking about at the time of recording about 20 for Biden, 184 for Trump that are known. You know, of course, the argument to that is, well, but they keep discovering more. And you're right, there's this drip, drip, drip factor that's really bad for Biden, that things just keep coming out. Always bad when the story comes out that way. On the other hand, are we going to sit here and just excuse what Trump did because Biden had some papers? Because it also, you know, when Trump's actions are judged, there's an obstinance there. I refuse to cooperate with the investigation. I I can just declassify this, with his, which is very questionable. We're going to talk about that in a bit. I also think while both parties are defending each of these individuals, Trump and Biden, like Watch for the primaries where this issue will get used by opponents in either party. Absolutely. So you're going to defend them now, you know, but uh, using all the standard things. But then when it comes to the primaries, it's like, Mr. Former President or Mr. President, how could you have behaved that way with these, the nation's most classified documents? Well, I want to see what they do when they're president. Maybe they'll pay more attention now. But I also believe that many of these documents are moved by aides in large numbers president doesn't often see them. Biden's claim is that he had not seen them. Um, you have the lingering issue that Congress is now, the House is now going to investigate, which is with the Biden papers, because they're from his vice presidency, had them for five years. So there could have been individuals with access to them for a longer period of time than with the Trump documents. That's an argument, just laying it out there. I think the counter to that is going to be, well, I didn't know they were in there. There's lots of documents, and only a few were found within there. David Priest is the publisher of Lawfare Blog, and he's been on the show before, a former CIA analyst. He says, look, it's odd. It's not odd to me, Priest says, that a former presidential papers would have mixed documents classified and non-classified. That's not weird. That's the nature of government. The odd thing 
Is it being in the personal possession of the president or in personal spaces? It's not supposed to happen. You're supposed to have only a few avenues towards classified approval, the approval of the current president to go to a government facility such as an FBI office to be briefed by agencies in rare cases, a former president like George H.W. Bush was able to go to the White House and sit in on intelligence briefings when he sat in with his son. The intelligence community can also be requested to come to a former president. I know this, Priest says, because I briefed former 41, Bush 41, that is, and um, the briefer would not leave any papers. In terms of the Biden case, Priest says we would need to see something differently than we've seen already. If the reporter had said the archivist had pointed out to Biden that these were clearly presidential materials and they said, too bad, we disagree, we're taking them anyway, that would be different. I don't think we have anything here other than embarrassment and cooperation, which is not a good political look, but probably a good legal look. That's what Priest says. So good to get his take on it, you know. A couple other points that were made on that same cast is that, you know, we don't know what these documents are. We keep talking about classified documents. There's 12 of them at Pence's. There's 20 of them at Biden's. And there's 184 something at Trump's place. We don't have any information on what these documents are. It's been a point of contention. Senators Mark Rubio and Mark Warner have said we need to know more about what these documents are to know about their oversight. But these are classified documents. So DOJ pushes back against some of the efforts to get information by the House and Senate to information that they're not privileged to see. So people are frustrated on the Hill about that. Um, we don't know the number of pages. So we can't have a classified document. It could be 20. It could be, you know, a zillion pages in one of the documents. In there's little bits of information because there's been more reporting on the Trump case, at least in the reporting, that some of them had a substantial density of pages and that some of them were about highly sensitive areas such as the nuclear program. But again, that's from reporting. It's not like anybody from uh, intelligence agencies out there telling the public, here's what the classified documents said. So we don't know that. And that makes that that's an additional consideration that just makes these stories difficult to judge. Documents classifying are as important. The amount of documents have increased over time that we classify. There's been cases, violations before. Let's talk about some of these well-known cases. So Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez during the Bush administration took some highly sensitive documents that deal, dealt with the National Security Agency's terrorist surveillance program and the detainee program in the late 2000s. He took them home and was not supposed to. The other one is uh, former general and CIA director David Petraeus. So this one gets bizarre because it all comes out of a stalking complaint. There's a woman in Florida who says, a woman stalking and harassing me. Well, it turns out that the reason this woman um, is being stalked and harassed is that another woman, Broadwell, is having an affair with David Petraeus. She has a low-level job in the military. It doesn't really entitle her to classified documents, so we'll get to that in a second. So she's stalking and harassing another woman because she thinks Petraeus is having an affair with her. There's no evidence of that. It, it There was a fundraiser event that the two were working on or something like that. 
put that aside. So that's a whole big brouhaha. But in the course of investigating that, it comes out that Petraeus has shared with uh, Rodwell, who in addition he's having an affair with, also is writing his biography. And he shared like eight notebooks that had classified material in them. Two years probation, $100,000 fine, Broadwell for it doesn't get any charges. It's a blemish on the career of a, of a general who in other aspects was saluted. Not everybody agrees because the Iraq war is a controversial thing. I do think on this classified issue, maybe a silver lining, by the way, total side note, um, is that maybe we could relook at uh, Petraeus and not, you know, condemn him so much for this. But, you know, it is still a deliberate handing over of documents to a person that you know, you know you're doing it. And he also lies when investigators first come and say, did you do this? And he says he didn't. So then you have Sandy Berger. So it's Sandy Berger. He's the former national security advisor. Clinton. And that's a pretty big job, obviously, where you're seeing a lot of classified documents. And after he's NSA head, he goes to the National Archives building in Washington, D.C., October 2003. Uh, so we've had the 9-11 attacks. We're in the thick of the Iraq War. And he's interested in papers about the Millennium Plot. So when he's NSA head, um, there is a major plot to attack multiple locations around the world at the millennium in 2000. This happens before 9-11. And it is, the story at least, is that because of the work done by various agencies in the Clinton administration, it's foiled. And that's as much as we know because something in there Sandy Berger didn't like maybe about how it was handled, particularly it's uh, five classified copies of a single report commissioned by Richard Clark, who was working under Condoleezza Rice, covering internal assessments of the Clinton administration's handling of the 2000 millennium attack plots. This is where they disrupt cells in eight countries before New Year's Eve. Um, he puts this, you know, he goes to visit the National Archives in Washington, D.C., he meets directly with the director because he's a former NSA. I mean, he's a bigwig. She leaves him alone in her office to see documents. During this time, he takes several breaks and goes outside. Well, in his pants pocket and in his socks, in some cases, are five pages of documents. He puts them over on a construction site right outside the National Archive building that's outside and then when he leaves, he retreats them. They find out later he's prosecuted in 2004 for this. Um, let's see another example here. Kendra Kingsbury. So she's working in the Kansas City FBI office. And over a course of 10 years, she's slowly but surely taking material on Al-Qaeda, particularly Al-Qaeda's activities in Africa. And it's including things like human sources. Now, this is some of the most important intel if you're giving up the names of people who are cooperating with American intelligence agencies, right? You know what bad can come from that. And uh, she does this over 10 years, knowingly stores documents in electronic format on hard drives, compact discs, other storage media, 
brings it home. All they have on her, and the conviction was only in 2021, all they have on her is that she took this information over 10 years about Al-Qaeda and brought it home. But of course, you have to ask why. And they haven't been able to prove at least that she had been sharing it. But it seems like a really good setup for being able to uh, share information with the wrong people for either ideological or um, financial reasons. Don't have evidence of that. But again, you know, the circumstances certainly there. Why are you piling this information up? For what reason? So, yeah, there are some pretty bad violations. But here's the thing. What do all of those share? They share with a willingness. Yes, I did this. And, you know, in some deliberate actions, which seem to differ a lot from some of the cases that we are talking about. Here's at least the argument from uh, Garrett Graff, who's author of Watergate, A New History. If we apply the standards of Sandy Berger and David Petraeus, versus Alberto Gonzalez and Hillary Clinton. Berger and Petraeus were prosecuted. Gonzalez and Hillary Clinton were not. Biden clearly falls on the non-criminal side, whereas Mr. Trump could get multiple criminal charges. Why? Because there is willful retention or gross negligence. Every sign we have so far is that Mr. Biden notified the right people at the right time. Yes, that's when he knew it. But again, you're going to constantly hear this argument, but it was there... It was in his vice presidential papers for five years, you know. So, again, you're not going to lose that political side of the issue. But, yes, in a strictly legal format, I, I really think that um, – here's Gaff again. Presidential Records Act of 1978 was created and passed by Congress precisely to make impossible what Mr. Trump apparently tried to do, absconding with the legacy and records of a presidency that belong rightfully to the nation, not to the individual. He and his supporters have claimed – that he can declassify documents his lawyers have carefully avoided making under oath that same claim in court. So let's examine that. Here's from the American Bar Association. Trump has said, there doesn't have to be a process as I understand it. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify documents just by saying it's declassified, even by thinking about it. Now, Let's disregard the last bit and just say, you know, if you're the president of the United States, can you just declassify it by saying, I order this? Most national security legal experts dismissed the former president's suggestion that he could declassify documents simply by thinking about it. But as an ABA legal fact check posted October 17th explained, legal guidelines support his contention that presidents have broad authority to formally declassify most documents that are not statutorily protected while they're in office. The ABA says some secrets, such as information related to nuclear weapons, are handled separately under a specific statutory scheme that Congress has adopted under the Atomic Energy Act. Those secrets cannot automatically be declassified by the president alone and require by law extensive consultation with executive branch agencies. In all cases, however, a formal procedure is required so government agencies know with certainty what has been declassified and decisions memorialized. A federal appeals court in a 2020 Freedom of Information Act case, New York Times or CIA, underscored that point. Declassification cannot occur unless designated officials follow specified procedures. But it all has yet to be challenged in court. So, you know, like, yeah, right. Controversy doesn't end. So I'll also say this. We focus so much on this issue, yet so many secrets went out through the back door. And you look at Aldridge Ames. 
you look at Robert Hansen at the FBI and the amount of, and, and there were, at least according to Soviet records, some others that were confirming who the Soviet cooperators were with the CIA there, and in most cases, executing them. A couple were turned into double or triple agents, and some eventually got executed anyway. Dealing very harshly and destroying the American intelligence apparatus. Did that have to do with classified documents in a president's house? No. From the back door of the intelligence agencies and some of the greatest uh, threats were lost. It's fresh on my mind because I'm doing the USSR podcast, and we talk to, uh, we, we quote Victor Cherkashin, who was the KGB agent who got Aldrich James. And it's an amazing thing. I mean, here in the middle of CIA in Washington, D.C., they're getting the best level information, not really paying that much. You know, 1.8 million over the course of years going from the Soviet times that we're going to talk about. There's a time that Gorbachev visits the CIA building and there is Aldrich James standing there. I don't know whether Gorbachev even knew because he wasn't told everything. And it goes into Yeltsin's presidency with his intelligence agencies and Aldridge is Ames is still being paid. 1.8 million cheap to get a lot of secrets. And that you'll find over the history between the US and the Soviet Union, they were getting a lot of what we had on the cheap. Those things are something to focus on as well. Um, but nonetheless, and then, you know, for anyone who served in these agencies, I know that they're probably thinking, well, what I would face if I mishandled these documents in terms of demotions or even um, potential criminal punishment. But we are to also talk, people have a dual role. They're also president. The amount of documents they're exposed to is greater and they can make certain arguments. I don't want, I don't want those arguments to become um, absolute because then you have a king, right? And that's just a problem. But Brett, I hope I did well enough with that. Um, and, uh, you know, more to come. We'll see. I think the right way to handle it is exactly what's being done. You have to investigate both, even if both are not equatable. On average, your average American is going to think they are. I want to thank you for listening on this. And remember, USSR podcast coming, fall of USSR. If you want, if you want to support the show, grab another Patreon, patreon.com slash MHC, B-U-Y-P. Thank you for listening.